Welcome to King Solomon and the Stoics, a project of denverkolel.org. I'm Shmueli Halpern, thank you for joining. In this episode, in honor of Hanukkah, we're going to analyze a couple of verses in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes Kohelas, and from there, we'll get into the subject of Greek philosophy versus Torah. A fascinating subject. Thank you for joining me along the ride. Let's begin with chapter 2, verse 12. Solomon says, Then I turned my attention to appraising wisdom with madness and folly. For what can man who comes after the king do? Sepharno explains, What can man who comes after the king do? What can man with his intellect possibly develop, create, understand that God himself has not yet created and done? What benefit is there for man's contribution? And I perceive that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man has his eyes in his head, whereas a fool walks in darkness. But I also realize that the same fate awaits them all. So I said to myself, the fate of the fool will befall me also? To what advantage then do I have to become wise? But I concluded that this too was futility, for there is no comparison between the remembrance of the wise man and the fool at all. For the succeeding days roll by, all is but forgotten. How can the wise man die like the fool? The Sepharno explains that King Solomon is raising the following question. How can man contribute more with his intellect, with his creativity, to that which God already created? And the answer, Solomon says, is that the the benefit of wisdom is like the benefit of light relative to darkness because man, the wise man, has his eyes in his head. Sepharno explains that means that the wise man sees the future. The wise man is able to analyze the results, the consequences of his actions, and proceed accordingly and choose accordingly. In the famous marshmallow test, the children who chose to do what would be a long-term benefit and not just go with the short-term benefit were much more successful in life because they are using their intellect. They're using their free will to decide. They're not just being pulled by the whim, by the desire of the moment. So Solomon is saying, yes, there's a benefit to wisdom. The wise man relative to the, to the fool is like light relative to darkness. So there's a great benefit to living with wisdom. And then Solomon goes on to say, but what about the fact that the wise man and the fool both die? Their end is one and the same. And to that he responds in verse 16, how is it possible that the wise man can die with the fool? Sepharno explains, Solomon is not making a statement that the wise man and the fool meet the same end. Solomon is questioning, it's not possible. Since the wise man was able to pass the marshmallow test, since the wise man was able to use his intellect to see the consequences of his actions and to choose that which will be a long-term benefit over that which will be a short-term pleasure, that proves that the wise man has an intellect that transcends the physical realm. It transcends the desire. It transcends the natural impulses. He has something transcendent called intellect, maybe called soul. And that soul lives on for eternity. And that's the idea that Sepharno draws from these verses. That man's ability to choose 
beyond the impulse of the moment is proof to the existence of a transcendent intellect, of a soul. And it is that soul that lives on for eternity. And that's the idea that Solomon develops here. Just to take this a drop further, before we jump into the Greek philosophy of it, Maral, in his book, Teferis Yisrael, writes that God created a physical realm and God created the human being with the human intellect. And the human intellect is a higher, more spiritual entity than the rest of creation. And so therefore, when man actualizes, when man uses his, his creativity properly, the result, the creations that result from man's intellect are greater than the handiwork of God himself. Because God created the world in such a way that man should and could come and perfect it. So that's, that's the idea morale relates, that the human intellect can create something greater, so to speak, than that which God himself creates. Having understood a bit about the importance and value of the human intellect, let's move on to analyze the difference between the Greek approach, the approach of the Greek philosophers, and the approach of Torah. This distinction comes out very strongly from Maral's treatment of the passage in the Talmud in Bechoros 8a and 8b, where there's a fascinating encounter with Rabbi Yehoshua and the sages of Athens, and Maral's metaphorical understanding of that discussion, of that story, gives us incredible insight into the vast difference between the Greek approach and the Torah approach. So let's go through the story a bit and pull out one or two pieces of it and analyze it using Maral's metaphorical comments. This, the sages relate in the Talmud, Bukhara's 8a and 8b, that Rabbi Yeshua had a conversation with the Roman Caesar. And Rabbi Yeshua said, I am wiser than the sages of Athens, than the Greek philosophers. And the Caesar says, if that's the case, why don't you travel to Athens and bring those sages, bring the, the philosophers back, conquer them, overwhelm them with your wisdom, and bring them back to me, which Rabbi Shua subsequently does. And again, Maral understands all of this in a metaphorical, very, very deep way. And let's analyze just a little part of the story. Rabbi Shua goes to Athens, and he enters a butcher shop. And he found a man skinning an animal. He finds the butcher skinning an animal. Rabbi Shua says to the man, is your head for sale? The butcher assumes Rabbi Shua is referring to the head of an animal, that he's in the midst of skinning. So he says to him, yes. However, if you listen carefully, Rabbi Shua didn't say, is the head for sale? He said, is your head for sale? And so Rabbi Shua said, for how much? And the butcher replied, for half a zuz. Rabbi Shua said, okay. And the butcher gave him half of the, Rabbi Shua gave him the animal's head. And Rabbi Shua said to him, no, I wasn't speaking of the head of the animal, I was speaking of your head. That's what I was purchasing. However, says Rabbi Shua, if you wish me to release you, go forth ahead of me and show me the entrance to the place of the sages of Athens. Apparently, these philosophers in Athens, again, at least in this metaphorical uh, story here, they lived, they operated, discussed, analyzed, whatever it was that they were working on in a secret place. And they didn't let anyone in, and they didn't let anyone out. The butcher hesitates, and Rabbi Shua suggests a strategy. 
He said to Rabbi Yeshua, I'm afraid, for they kill anyone who indicates their place. Anyone who reveals the secret place of the sages of Athens dies. Rabbi Yeshua says, I have an idea for you. Carry a bundle of reeds as though you were a laborer going about your business, and when you arrive at the, at the entrance of the Athenian, Athenian sages, casually stand your bundle on end, like a person who stops momentarily to rest, and I'll know that you've reached the entrance of the sages of Athens, or the entrance of the academy of the sages of Athens, and no one will know that you, um, that you showed me where it was. And that's what he does. Maral explains that this whole elaborate scheme that Rabbi Shua develops is for a very, very specific purpose. And that is as follows. Where Rabbi Shua is going to war with the sages of Athens is over the definition of intellect, over the definition of transcendent intellect, over the definition of soul. And it goes as follows. Maral's comments are as follows. The soul, the lower, there are different elements of the soul of man, with the intellectual realm, the soul aspect being the higher level of man's soul. So there is the animated soul that a man shares with an animal. They both are alive. There is even a soul to a living thing, to a plant. And then there's an animal soul and there's a human soul. And that human soul is intellectual. It's something more spiritual than the animal soul. But the man has an animal soul too. Man also has an animated soul that gives life to his actions in a more physical sense. And so the conversation between Rabbi Yehoshua and the butcher goes as follows. Rabbi Yehoshua was telling the butcher that if you would like me to leave you alone, if you would like that your soul, that I should spare your life, that your head that I bought should remain on your shoulders, then show me the sages of Athens. Show me the transcendent intellect of the Greek philosophers, and then I'll let you go, because then it will be clear that you are a human being, you are different than the cow's head that you thought I was, I was purchasing, and therefore you will live. And so he says, I'm afraid that they're going to kill me. This is because in the view of the sages of Athens, the transcendent intellect is above, it transcends human being, the personality of the human being. And therefore, in the view of the sages of Athens, of the Greek philosophers, if a simple butcher shows up to meet the transcendent intellect of the Greek philosophers, he disappears. He has no place, and he loses his right to live. And so the butcher says to Rabbi Yeshua, I'm afraid to show you the sages of Athens, because in the place, and relative to the sages of Athens, I have no existence. I'm not human in a certain sense relative to the what is known here in Athens is the true humanity of the trans, transcendent intellectual philosophers. And so Rabbi Shua tells him, do the following. Take a bundle of reeds and carry it to the entranceway to the secret academy and then put it down. And what he's trying to say is that even the sages of Athens agree that the simple human personality is the tool it's the, that which creates, it's the receptacle for the transcendent intellect. So the human being in the view of the, of the Greek philosophers was as follows. There's a physical being, there's a personality made up of emotions and, and very mundane things. However, that human being can transcend, can overcome those human limitations and use his life to create pure intellectual achievements 
whether they're books, whether they're teachings, whether they're edifices, whether, whether they're political infrastructures, whatever they might be, but the human being can create intellectual achievements that outlive them. So, therefore, Abishua told the butcher, carry this bundle of reeds to the secret entranceway of the academy and put it down, showing that it is the human being, the simple, physical, emotional personality of the human being that can create, that carries, like you're carrying the bundle of reeds, that carries the transcendent intellect. And so you do have a connection with the transcendent intellect because you as a person are what creates the possibility and the potential for this transcendent intellect. And so therefore, Yeshua shows up and he comes face to face with the sages of Athens, with the sages of Greece, through this elaborate scheme of showing that every simple person has a connection with the sages of Athens because it is the simplicity of the human personality, as simple and as material as it might be, that gives rise that allows the creation of the transcendent intellectual achievements of the Greek philosophers. And so Rabbi Shua shows up and meets the sages of Athens. Now, there's a very strange conversation that follows. And again, for the sake of time, we're just going to focus on one or two points. So the sages of Athens challenge Rabbi Shua. Rabbi Shua begins by telling them that if they win him over with their arguments, they can do whatever they desire with him. However, if he overwhelms them with his wisdom, they have to come and enjoy a meal on his boat where he subsequently manages to trick them and he manages to sail back to Rome. But we're not going to get much into that. It's too, uh, it gets too detailed and it's beyond the scope of this discussion. But let's jump into one challenge that the Athenian sages said to Rabbi Yeshua. They said to him, tell us an empty statement, one utterly untrue. Why it's important to say a completely untrue statement? We'll understand it in a bit, according to Maral's interpretation. He said to them, there was a mule that gave birth, and when the foal emerged, there was a note hung around its neck, in which was written that there was a liability upon the foal's father's household to the amount of 100,000 zuz. So again, this sounds very obscure, very strange, but basically, a mule who cannot give birth, gave birth, and when the baby came out, there was a note around its neck that said that the father's household owed the baby, owed the foal, 100,000 zos. That was the statement that Yeshua said to the Athenians. So the Athenians objected and they said to him, Can a mule give birth? And Yeshua said to them, This is then the empty statement that you demanded of me. And again, this seems like a, such a strange conversation between Yeshua one of the greatest of Jewish sages and some of the greatest philosophers of all time. What's going on over here? Maral explains as follows. The Greek philosophers believed, again, that the human personality gave birth to intellect. It gave birth to intellectual achievements. And so Abishul is saying to the, to the sages of Athens that according to your understanding, a mule who cannot give birth is giving birth because... The human personality in your mind is something that is not tra- not transcendent. It's not intellectual. It doesn't live on for eternity. And yet it's giving birth to something that lives on for eternity. It's giving birth to something that has life. How can that be? How can the mule give birth? Not only that, says Rabbi Shua, 
But when the mule does give birth, which again is an impossibility, when it does give birth, what is written on the note that's hanging around the baby's neck, around the foal's neck? It says that the father's household owes the baby 100,000 zuz. What that means is that the baby loaned his father, the mule, 100,000 zuz. That means that the baby, the thing that is created in the Greek view, the human intellect and intellectual achievements that are created, which outlive, which last forever, and they are beyond the thing, the human being, the human personality that created them. And so what gives life, what gives eternity, what gives immortality to the human being? The thing which he creates, the baby, gives life to the father. And that, he says, is very strange. If the father has no life by himself, if the human being is is, is mortal and is not transcendent, how could it give birth to something immortal, to something transcendent? And that was Rabbi Shua's um, empty statement to show the, the Athenians, to, to show the Greek philosophers how Torah objects to their view of the human soul, the human intellect. What is the Torah view? We'll get there in a moment. Another question was as follows. When salt threatens to go rancid, when salt is going to become moldy, going to go bad, with what can it be salted? How can you preserve a preservative. How can you preserve salt? That was the question that the sages of Athens posed to Rabbi Shua. Rabbi Shua responded with a very, very strange answer. You can preserve salt with the afterbirth of a mule, with the placenta of a mule, which is extremely, extremely strange statement. Said the Athenians, but can a mule have an afterbirth? It doesn't give birth in the first place. Replied Rabbi Shua, and does salt go rancid? What's going on in this conversation? Morale explains that, again, salt is something that is immortal in a certain sense, at least metaphorically. It's something that does not go rancid. Just like the human soul, in the Torah view, it is eternal in and of itself. A person is born with a soul that is apart from God and high that is eternal, it is immortal. And, but they asked Rabbi Yeshua, how do you preserve the soul? So he said to them, you preserve the soul with the afterbirth of a mule. Because again, he's telling them, you believe that it is a mule that gives birth to intellect. It's a mule that gives birth to human achievement. But that doesn't make any sense, says Rabbi Yeshua. Because the mule cannot give birth. But in your understanding, it is the afterbirth of a mule that gives the immortality to the human intellect, to the human soul, to the human achievement. Again, an impossibility like Rabbi Shua argued previously, you cannot guarantee and provide immortality with something that is in itself mortal. And so again, here we have Rabbi Shua's argument to the Athenian sages that the Torah view of soul is something immortal. God created man with godly soul, with something that lives on forever. And when that soul speaks through the human body, when that soul acts in this physical world, it needs to overcome the challenges, the moral challenges of living in this life, the soul is elevated, the soul grows, the light of the soul shines even brighter. And in the world to come, where the true light of the soul will shine, we will experience the joy of all those moral choices that the soul 
developed. But the soul is in itself immortal. The human being is in itself immortal. It's not just the outside achievement of the human being that live on, but it's the human being himself. It's the essence of, of what it means to be human that truly lives on forever. Recently, I, ha- I was reading the writings of Ryan Holiday, who's an incredible author. I was reading some of his books, and I really enjoyed them and learned a lot from them. And a few moments later, I opened up the biography of Ramosha Feinstein, the preeminent halachic authority in the United States who passed away in the late 80s, I believe. And it's, it was just, it was incredible to me. I felt like I was dealing, reading about a different species. I, it wasn't the same human being that Holiday wrote of and that what emerged from the pages of the biography of Rabbi Feinstein. It, there was something intangible. I could have put my finger on it. But I think in light of Maral's comments, we can understand it. In the Greek view, if we're going to take the Greek philosophy, and yes, many of their ideas live on in a watered-down version today. If we take the Greek approach, the human being is one thing, and his achievements are another. And so we have to downplay, we have to downgrade, we have to say that the human being with his emotions, with his ego, with his involvement in this world, that's not important. It's empty, it's nothing. Just put it down. It's nothing. Don't get too caught up in it. In that, the Torah agrees. Don't get too caught up in physicality. But the Greeks say that physical reality is something to be pushed down. It's something to be suppressed so that man could create something transcendent, intellectual creative achievements that are beyond the human being. They're not the human being himself. They're what the human being creates. So that creates a void, that creates an emptiness to human life. Human life is not important. Human achievement is important. But what of the life? What of the effort? What of the day-to-day existence? Where's the value? Where's the immortality of that? The Torah view is very, very different. The Torah view is one of a bright, shining light of the immortal soul. That is life. That shines and it can shine to a larger degree or to a lesser degree, depending on man's choices. But it shines into life itself. It shines into the day-to-day existence that we live. It can shine into the food we eat when we properly appreciate its source. It can shine into every single aspect of life. Life is holy. Not just human achievement, but life itself is holy. The soul is ever-present. The soul is immortal. This is the difference on a very, very overview type way. This is the difference between the Torah view and the Greek view that comes out in the fight between the Jews and the Greeks in the story of Hanukkah. And it is the light of the menorah, it's the light of the soul, that reminds us that we have the ability to light that candle. We have the ability to increase the illumination of the soul. That's what it means to be a Torah person. That's the privilege that we have with Torah, and that's what the Hanukkah lights are there to remind us of. Thank you for listening. All the very best.